All right, Chris, I think we've got a lot to unpack in this episode, so I want to get through the pledge so we can uh, get to recapping. Okay. Uh, So are you standing? Yes, sir. I was going to say put your hand over your heart, but we never really specified. Should you put your hand over your head or your heart or just leave your hands at your sides? You're the one who came up with the pledge. I'm going along with the pledge, so where should I put my hands? How about if you kind of tent your fingers in front of you the way that Saul Goodman does? Oh, yeah. Got it. Like spread your fingers out and touch them together and kind of move them back and forth right. while you do it. That's very Saul-like. Now, we begin the pledge. Odenkirk, Odenkirk is, is my spirit animal. animal. He, he is, is my guide. guide. The path, path to enlightenment leads through Odenkirk. In a a fallen fallen world, world, it it takes takes a slimy, fast-talking lawyer lawyer to to teach us all to love. This This is my pledge to watch and recap Better Better Call Call Saul. Say it with me. Saul. Hey, Chris. Hey, John. Well, um, we, if anyone heard the uh, precap, episode zero episode of the show, you may have heard us theorizing about what Better Call Saul was going to be, and now we have seen the first episode, yes, the first part of a two-night sort of premiere event for the show, and we now actually have something to talk about. Last time it was all theories and speculation, and now we have some hard facts. Well, in general, before we get into a plot breakdown, what would be some of your general impressions of the show, Chris, based on the first episode? Uh, well, it was great. I had a lot of fun. And I think, uh, to me, it, uh, it really did uh, a lot of that same thing that Breaking Bad did that I liked so much, was uh, just not knowing where this is going and what we're going to get into. You know, like... I guess I'd compare it to, say, uh, the, the Sopranos or something. You know, okay, uh, we're in a mob world. We're going to meet some Italian mobsters, and they're going to uh, kill each other off. You basically feel like you know what world you're going to stay in throughout the show. Uh, throughout Breaking Bad, I always felt like, I don't know who we're going to— You know, outside of uh, Bigfoot or UFO or something, you pretty much—anything could happen. You don't know what kind of character is going to come into it, what kind of stories are going to come into it. And it feels like a big mystery, and all you know is, oh, this is good, it's really well done, but I don't know where we're going and what we're getting into. And I felt the same way through this whole first episode. The, the first scene uh, answered a lot of questions for me about just what the scope of this show might be. In that first moment, we are introduced to Gene, a Cinnabon manager, uh, whose glasses and mustache don't look too different from Walter White's at the beginning of Breaking Bad. You know, he seems kind of put upon and milk toast. Right. And obviously it's Saul living uh, the exact fate that he predicted he would face in the episode Granite State, the uh, penultimate episode of Breaking Bad. Hey, I'm a civilian. I'm not your lawyer anymore. I'm nobody's lawyer. The fun's over. From here on out, I'm Mr. Low Profile, just another douchebag with a job and three pairs of dockers. If I'm lucky, month from now, best case scenario, I'm managing a Cinnabon in Omaha. And when the opening of Better Call Saul came on and we heard the great song by the Ink Spots, a song called Address Unknown, which I don't know if you might want to say a few words about that in a minute, but that music came on and it was one of those great, uh, you know, Breaking Bad styled montages where you're just kind of seeing artful imagery. It reminded me of watching them cook meth, except a totally different (laughs) (laughs) sort of thing. The reveal just goes hand in hand with seeing what the predicament of of Gene slash Saul is, which is that he is definitely paranoid and maybe even cowardly. He's still on the run from... I guess, the law and all the drug lords or the people involved in the drug trade that might be, uh, you know, looking for someone to pay for what Walter White did in the in the end of Breaking Bad. So what did you think of that sequence? I loved it. It was really well done. And, uh, of course, yeah, from the first second, the Ink Spots uh, start singing, which I love and uh, gave me a, the giggles because we just, you and I uh, did an episode of your uh, music podcast, Um, playing records with John, uh, where I was the guest, and we just talked about the Ink Spots and the Boswell Sisters and the Mills Brothers. And so anybody who cares uh, about uh, the Ink Spots, uh, go back and and listen to that episode. But um, yeah, the whole thing was very well done, and you see that it's Omaha, and and the guy gives him a scare. Uh, A lot of fun. Yeah, there's a fellow sitting there in the restaurant who has a kind of a, a 
thousand yard stare, and he seems to be looking at Saul, but he's really looking past him at someone that he recognizes. And as he walks past Saul, we see that Saul really is just again seems to be living in a kind of fear, like he like he wonders if someone's going to open fire on him <laughs> at any moment. And I will say it was very sad seeing Saul in this state, seeing him go back to his his uh, town home and uh, you know fix himself a drink. I, I noticed what he added. He did add Dewar's scotch. Uh, uh, Drambuie and lemon juice. I think that's a rusty nail. A rusty nail calls for a lemon peel, but I felt like this was a cheap homemade uh, rusty nail okay. that he made for himself. And then he digs up an old VHS tape and 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 watches Saul Goodman ads from his heyday. You know, which really just from a few years before. But we don't know how long he's been living this life as Gene. There were so many ways in which it kind of mirrored the way we felt about Walter White in the beginning. Except it was this reverse. I don't know. I found it to be a really clever way to to echo the show and remind us of certain themes, but show us instantly we're seeing a different a different slant on it. Because to this point, we still don't have any indication that Jimmy has a romantic affiliation with anybody or a, or a kid or anything that might give him a purpose beyond his own needs. You know, right. the closest thing we have is his brother, which we'll get to that a little bit later. So back at his house, he watches the Saul Goodman spots. And then he seems to be kind of simmering. And I wouldn't be surprised if maybe you would agree that maybe a, a tear comes to his eye or something in that moment. And then it goes to the titles of the show. Right. And then we're in, then we're in the, the timeline that we expect it to be in, not after the events of Breaking Bad, but set back in 2002, where, um, you know, Jimmy McGill is keeping a courtroom waiting before busting in flamboyantly and trying a kids will be kids and nobody got hurt uh, defense with right. these three young clients of his who turn out to be not just accused of cutting the head off of a corpse and copulating with it, but caught on tape in it. And I thought the way that scene right. played out and the reveals that happened were very funny. It was fantastic to save that for the end where you're wondering, I mean, they, you know, I, I was, they got me. They convinced me like, oh, these kids did something relatively harmless maybe Saul's right and you know I knew maybe this was coming that it was something worse than uh the way he presents it but it was so so horrible and uh it really got me because uh my uh my mom has been getting into Netflix and just a couple weeks ago she said to me hey if you uh run into any new shows let me know I'm looking for you know what's my next thing to watch (laughs) <laughs> and then you said, let's do a podcast about Better Call Saul. I thought, maybe I can recommend that to my mom. And now like five, ten minutes into the episode, we've got sex with a severed head. And so uh, uh, maybe, I, maybe I shouldn't recommend. She's pretty sensitive. Right. Well, you know, I mean, it's funny how that works. Uh, when I found out certain shows that my parents were watching, you know, like that kind of – I mean, we've discussed this uh, – at other times about other things, but just television gets away with a lot more than movies. Like what you might see on a primetime show of this sort, minus the the amount of nudity or, or cursing that you can get in there, in terms of thematic content and what happens to people, there are R-rated movies that aren't as harsh as a scene you might see on Breaking Bad or The Walking Dead or something like that. Yeah. And, you know, obviously Better Call Saul is in that world. It seems to be a lighter version, but it's in that world. So I, I, I thought it staked out a claim to, like, this is the kind of content, this show is going to go there, but maybe in this other slightly more comedic way, you know, that yeah. we're going to be allowed to... I mean, I'm sure at some point we're going to be worried about characters that we that we do care about. And, in fact, I think in this episode we start to see where some of that danger might come from. Yeah. But in this one moment, it really does feel like he's kind of playing a game and trying to be the slick lawyer who, 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 I mean, really, he's just, it almost appears that he knows he's lost that case, but he's, he's keeping his head above water or something in, in that right. o- opening scene. And, um, I wonder, I mean, I don't know if there's going to be further ramifications, but the main thing we gleaned from it is that he's not getting paid what he thinks he should be getting paid, that he was, he was, uh, he had three clients. He thought he was going to get $700 per client. He's actually going to get $700 for the whole trial because he tried them all at once. Was there anything that really surprised you about seeing the the state? I know we theorized a lot in the last one about um, what Jimmy might be like at the beginning of the show. I mean, do you feel like they, they came in and very quickly established the sort of moral level of this character? At this point in the show, uh, he feels very much like the Saul that we know. But I like that we got more uh, of his backstory. Where I had thought, okay, maybe we'll start with him being more young and fresh-faced, and he will learn to be uh, more Weasley and conniving. Now I see, no, we're starting out with pretty much the Saul that we know, but I think what, what he has yet to learn is uh, how to keep things out of, of trial. You know, uh, like maybe that's his, his main trick. We're going to witness him, you know, right now he would, he would let things go to trial and hope to win. 
uh, maybe we're going to see the evolution of how he learns that as often as possible, you should just trick your opponents into staying out of court and uh, do what you can to use the you know backdoor channels to uh, uh, to win through trickery. Um, before we leave the courtroom scene entirely, I just wanted to mention, I thought there were some great atmospheric details that, again, are very Breaking Bad. But throughout the scene, you can kind of hear the hum of the, f- the fluorescent lights. Um, when the guy wheels the TV cart out, you can see the, the kind of dirty orange extension cord trailing behind it that just makes it around the corner of the of the um, the bench. You know, different little, or the jury box, I can't, wherever he's wheeling it in from. Mm-hmm. It's little things like that that feel to me very much like what Breaking Bad always does great is like close in on a little detail that it doesn't make it's like it doesn't feel like a cartoonish world. It's like you you're allowed to appreciate the kind of comic absurdity of this of this world as they present it, but it doesn't feel like you you have any kind of comic distance from the characters. It still feels like, you know, a, like a paper cut would hurt in this world. You know what I mean? Right. Um, but you do see everything as slightly grotesque without without achieving that kind of, I don't know, condescension to the characters that a lot of times in comedy um, you can you can find yourself laughing at the characters like most of these you know even like the opposing counsel in that courtroom scene you feel like there's a whole inner life to that character that we could get into that we just don't we you know right and the the, the court stenographer with the with the big gulp you know little details like that are just very very Breaking Bad to me that's true they don't those those people could just be extras but they don't look like extras they look like humans who if for some reason you decided this is a character now who gets involved in the story. You'd be perfectly you. You'd welcome it. That looks like a yeah. fully formed human. It's almost like nobody quite. Well, I mean, until we get to some of the other more recognizable faces, but like, it's nobody quite looks like they should be on television. You know what I mean? Even Bob Odenkirk doesn't seem like your right. typical leading man. Uh, well, right. next we find Saul uh, impersonating a British receptionist on his cell phone, uh, using the excuse of paint fumes to meet some potential clients, the Kettlemans, at a restaurant. When actually he doesn't want them to see that he runs his law office out of a dingy hole uh, in the back of a nail salon. Right. Um, as he tries to leave for his appointment, he encounters Mike Ermintrout, who is working the toll booth at the municipal parking lot. And uh, there's no real evidence of what Mike is up to yet, but he won't budge in his role as the toll booth operator. <laughs> and he forces a scenario where Saul has to choose between going back inside for another parking validation sticker or coughing up uh, three measly bucks. And it's very important to note that Saul has to go back inside. Like, I don't know if he didn't right. have three ones in his wallet, but I think that tells you a lot about the character. What did you think of that little encounter with Mike? And and, and do you have any idea what Mike's doing yet? I have no idea <laughs> about Mike. And it's, it, it points up there, you know, there's several things here. If somebody wanted to watch this show never having seen Breaking Bad, um, you know, they're not getting the juice of Mike. They're just thinking, well, this is a grumpy guy. And then later they'll find out more. But you know, so much pleasure comes from having watched Breaking Bad and knowing who Mike is as a a, a fixer slash hitman and knowing that he's such a huge badass and wondering why in the world is he in this toll booth and how is this going to uh, become anything. As he's walking away from Mike, there's a couple of cops standing there and he's been yelling at Mike and everything and he says, don't do anything, guys, just relax. Uh, and I just loved the chutzpah of that. You're like, oh, here's some cops standing here, but I'm, I'll just act like I'm their boss. And uh, that's a, a perfect little picture to me of, of Jimmy McGill. The next scene we see is him meeting with the Kettlemans, who seem to me like they are probably going to be uh, running characters on the show. Maybe. I don't know. But it seems like they might be a through line or maybe based on what happens later in this episode, maybe they're gone from the plot at this point. But it seems that Craig Kettleman is a county treasurer who is having to account for a $1.5 million discrepancy in his accounting, and it was something that Saul saw in the paper, and so he kind of, it was a cold call he made to these people to meet with them. So they, they don't seem to know for sure that they need a lawyer, and we see his his clammy desperation as he almost gets them to sign with him, and, and then literally at the last second, the wife decides that maybe they should sleep on it. And then uh, when he's leaving that, he's, he's in the car, and he hits, he's driving around in a neighborhood that looks very much like Walter White's neighborhood, and he hits a skateboarder who is actually a con artist working with his twin brother to shake motorists down for cash, and he calls their scam, and they run off. And, I, you know, the guys seemed like we might be seeing more of them, and of course we do. Um, all this cash strap squirming makes it especially significant that in the next scene, Jimmy's in his office, and he opens a check for $26,000, and he rips it up. I mean, that moment really plays because we've seen him scrounge and we've seen him, you know, get $700 when he thought he was going to get three times that. And we've seen him go back because he didn't have three singles in his pocket um, uh, or most likely. 
Yeah. So yeah, that was a pretty big deal. And that created a lot of intrigue for me going into the next scene where he actually goes to the law firm of Hamlin, Hamlin and McGill, which was founded in part by his brother. And and he's he's there on behalf of his brother. But the one thing I can say is that Howard Hamlin, uh, the sort of who seems to be the kind of nemesis to Saul thus far or to Jimmy thus far, he seems smooth and affable. But there's like a weird smugness that makes him a natural foil for uh, grasping, sweaty Jimmy. Right. You can tell he's one of those people you just hate for being too perfect. Right. Well, he's but he's so he plays it so friendly that you have to believe that he's masking something with that. I mean, it could be that maybe the guy's just a good lawyer and that we're meant to see him through Saul's eyes or something and, and dislike him at first. But I, I feel like, yeah, we're going to find out that he's phony because how could he not? There's just the history between Chuck and the firm. It's not really clear what's going on there, but it seems in the simplest terms, it seems that the, the Chuck McGill uh, has left for health reasons. And Jimmy's trying to negotiate a cash out for him, whether Chuck wants him to or not. And the firm wants to keep him on the payroll and avoid paying his huge share of their holdings. This seems to be the big situation that Jimmy is working on at this point. Like, he's really trying to get what he thinks is right for his brother. At the same time, he seems very interested in getting some of the money, too, I would assume. Yeah, I, I, it was great. Uh, I feel kind of bad because, uh, I've, you know, all my notes are, I love this. Everything was great. It, you know, it seems kind of... Uh, to have a re- recap podcast show, it seems like a good thing to have some moments where you're going to say, everything was cool, but I don't know about this. This kind of sucked. I'm worried about that. I don't, I don't have that yet. I have all, all good notes. But to me, like, I got so much pleasure uh, watching uh, Jimmy wa- <laughs> walk into his uh, uh, office. I don't even want to call it an office, but his, his hole in the back of the uh, nail salon. And to go from that, <laughs> I mean, it was so, <laughs> when we see his name on the door, you know, behind and the, it's taped it, it, through the room with the laundry, laundry, with the uh, washing machine going and his taped up name, I, that was the biggest laugh in the show for me is just watch, watching him uh, enter that little room. And now the contrast between that and uh, this beautiful, huge place of uh, Hamill, Hamill and, uh, what is it, Hamlin, Hamlin and, and McGill? Uh, yes. It's so big, and he acts like he knows everybody in there when he walks in, and uh, it's beautifully appointed. Uh, and so I love that contrast. And the other thing I loved about uh, the visit to the office there that seemed like just a really nice touch is uh, you were talking about, uh, you know, small close-ups on minutia and everything and the trash can. As we go in, we see the dented trash can, and maybe you don't think much of it, but if it sticks with you that there's this dented trash can, and on the way out, he he— kicks the trash can uh, repeatedly to vent his frustration. Um, so you feel like, oh, he's, he's already been here before and already done this before, uh, maybe several times. Did that remind you of the paper towel dispenser in Breaking Bad that Walt punched? Oh, no, I'd forgotten all about that. Like that we came back and saw in a later scene, and we saw that it was still dented in. Oh, right. As he leaves Hamlin, Hamlin, and McGill, there's two things that happen. He sees that the Kettlemans have actually come to that firm, and they seem to be seeking law help, maybe even from his matchbook that he gave them, which has his name on it, but not any kind of office address, because he doesn't want anyone seeing his shitty office. Um, And... (laughs) So it's like maybe they went there looking for him. I don't know. But it seems that the Kettlemans are going with Hamlin and Hamlin and McGill, which frustrates him as he's leaving. And so he kicks the trash can and he shares a cigarette with Kim Wexler. Yeah, they mentioned Kim. Uh, Chuck, uh, Chuck, the brother, mentioned uh, your friend Kim would be one of the people who's out of a job. And uh, and so that gave us a little insight just saying your friend, you know, doesn't say your old girlfriend or anything. Uh, and. And I love seeing their relationship when he comes out and smokes her cigarette. It's very high school, you know. It just feels like, hmm, they're, they're kind of high school people right now. Right. They're, but it's also like he, he, he asked for help on some vague thing, which could be directly related to what he was just mentioning in the meeting that she was there for. Or it could be some other thing between the two of them that we're not clear on. But, I mean, clearly she's positioned as, as one of the lead characters on the show. So I have a feeling, you know, she's going to be a an ally or of some sort of, of Saul's or Jimmy's. It seems that there's a, uh, there's a, you know, there's a history or something there. So next up, he does meet Chuck. A visit to Chuck's involves leaving his cell phone in the mailbox and grounding himself before entering the building. Uh, Chuck seems to be, I looked this up, he seems to be afflicted with electromagnetic hypersensitivity of, of some sort. Is that and a real he thing? he types on him. Yeah. So he has no power in the house. They have to use old gas lanterns. 
it's like a trip back in time. Yeah, he types on a manual typewriter by gaslight. He keeps his food in coolers. Right. Uh, there's something there's something really cryptic happening between the two brothers. Chuck appears to base his attitude and goals on the idea of getting better and returning to work, whereas Jimmy counsels him cashing out, which we already knew. And that would only seem to indicate that he has a lack of faith in his brother's recovery or that maybe he doesn't really believe his brother's ill. There's there's something going on there um, right. that's unspoken. And we're only beginning to understand it. Chuck explodes at Jimmy and Jimmy apologizes, which is actually kind of a little tender moment. You can see that he really doesn't want to offend his brother or, or tell him he doesn't think he's getting better. But that seems to be where he's coming from. Right. The only way he can say we can we can get your $17 million and I can make a lot of money and this would be awesome is to say, hey, you really are dying. And I'm not supporting your effort to uh, get better again. Or if it's not dying, uh, you're, you're useless. Right. I took it as you're useless or come on, this is all in your head. You're not really getting better or you keep saying you're getting better. But he doesn't want to say that right out to his brother, so he loses the argument. And it's interesting that right at that moment, Chuck then reveals just how much kind of still in the pocket of the firm he is because he clearly is acting on behalf of Howard Hamlin, who has come by for a visit, I guess, before Jimmy did. Yeah. And, and and showed him the matchbook, and basically Chuck is passing along Howard's message that maybe Jimmy should avoid uh, using the name McGill to avoid confusion with the firm. And and you can see that, that Jimmy's hurt by that, that his own brother is basically saying, don't use our name. But Chuck plays it off in a really interesting way. I mean, I didn't see a lot of animosity or like he was trying to oppress his brother. At this point, Chuck seems almost like an idealistic person. Right. But clearly there's something going on there. I just loved seeing... Uh when the scene got the most intense and Michael McKean cried and he did so great and and uh, uh, Bob Odenkirk did so great in the scene that it really uh, paid off what you said in our first episode. You said, that, uh, uh, I don't, can't remember how you phrase it, this is, this is like a gift from the comedy gods or something like that where you've got these, these two great uh, sketch comics coming together to do drama. And, you know, we know that comedians oftentimes are the best dramatic actors and... Uh, I don't think I've ever seen Michael McKean cry before. Uh, surely in all his long career, he must have uh, cried on film or on the stage, but uh, uh, I can't remember seeing it, and uh, I was, like, just super impressed. Well, I mean, you felt the energy change. You felt it's a big brother chewing out a little brother, basically saying, but but there was a, like, there was a show of weakness. Like, he was, he was kind of shouting down Jimmy, but in doing so, he was being emotional. You know what I mean? So it's right. like he came off as more kind of pathetic... Than, than, than uh, threatening in a strange way. And at that point was when Jimmy backs down. And again, to your point about the acting, I sensed a real, like Bob Odenkirk played that moment great, where he's, 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 he really doesn't want to be mean to his brother. But when he leaves, you can see that he's angry. Yeah. And anger motivates his whole next, <laughs> he goes into scheming mode. Because he doesn't want to change his name. He's been told, yeah, he's like, this is, this is war now. We're, it's on. So he finds the bearded skateboard twins from earlier who tried to scam him. And he proposes that they do the same thing they tried with him, but with Betsy Kettleman, which is, you know, it's like clearly the vengeance is, is so much a part of it. Um, he explains that the Kettlemans are wealthy and that he, they can get them a better payday uh, than the usual two or $300 that they get from, from, you know, hitting motorists like him. The plan works out, except for the fact that the skateboarders uh, choose the wrong car, which then drives away. <laughs> and then when they follow them home, it's clearly not the home of the affluent Kettlemans. They accost the driver, who is an elderly Latino woman, um, and she lets him into her house. As the episode ends, Jimmy arrives at the same house, only to be met at the door by the psychotic drug lord, drumroll please, a, a character from Breaking Bad, Tuco. Tuco. Who was an early adversary of Walter White's and a pretty terrifying adversary of, of Walter White's. And the one thing I thought when I saw Tuco, outside of the fact that he does kind of, it's maybe one of the few times that the show slows down and gives you a, a shot that's like a fan service shot. Like, but Tuco coming out and looking back and forth before he shuts the door and, and you know, seals Jimmy inside with him. And we can assume that the two bearded uh, skateboard nitwits are in there too. Um, I don't know if I like everybody's chances <laughs> coming out of this situation. Yeah. Um, but uh, I found that moment to be really powerful. I kind of allowed him the, the, the splash page shot of Tuco because it was cool to see him. And I thought of something we said last time as well about how knowing that this adventure, at least the one set in 2002, knowing that Jimmy survives it does take away some of the threat of danger. But we also know Tuco survives it. <laughs> so it takes away some of the hope that he's going to get off. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. whatever he does with Tuco, it can't result in killing Tuco. Right. The way in Bre Breaking Bad, the only way to stop him was to, was to kill him. Yeah. So we know that Saul has to find another way. So I found that to be a really, I, I don't know, just an interesting promise of where this show might go. 
and it was a great way to end the episode. Now, I'm really glad that we get episode two so quickly. What we're actually going to do in this episode is we're going to take a break and then come back to talk about episode two and treat it almost as one big opening dose. But how did you feel about that whole, the whole ending there? Did it kind of feel like, it, to me, it reminded me of Walter White running a scheme, but it was a different version. I, I'm going to love seeing this guy scramble. Yeah. It just was, well, before we got to the final uh, end there, just in, uh, I was going to say uh, that I was mentioning earlier, uh, uh, we got to find out more about Jimmy's past as a kid when, when he was uh, accosting the uh, uh, the skaters and started telling them, you know, the story of, of slipping Jimmy, his teenage self, you know, so, I mean, I love that story. And the, so now we know uh, ever since he's a kid, he's been uh, looking for loopholes in the system and trying to get money for nothing. So... You just know he's always going to be using his skills to either get criminals off or save himself from getting killed. I'm sure he'll be in pinches. But also, it makes me wonder, you know, is he ever going to be using his skills for good or for love? Or is he just going to remain a weasel the whole time? Well, I'm glad you brought that question up because when I was rewatching the opening part before we sat down to do this, I was taking a few notes. And I really caught that it seems that when he puts on that tape, it's almost like a guy listening to a motivational tape. Mm-hmm. Gene, you know, Saul, Gene, the manager of the Cinnabon, who used to be mm-hmm. Saul Goodman, who used to be Jimmy McGill, Gene needs to call Saul. He's watching these commercials that say, better call Saul. Gene's in a rut. He's feeling down. When it goes to the title at the beginning of the show, this is the commercial that we are hearing. This, it's, this is the, the monologue. It's Saul talking to Gene, yeah. saying, Do you feel doomed? Have opponents of freedom wrongly intimidated you? Maybe they told you that you're in serious trouble and there's nothing you can do about it. I'm Saul Goodman, and I'm here to tell you that they're wrong. It's never too late for justice. Better call. And then it cuts it off as it goes to titles. Yep. But I, I feel like in that moment, whether this is something he does all the time to kind of remind himself and get his spirits up or just stay in touch with himself, or if in that moment that was the show telling us uh, that this present day version of Saul that we, we may be seeing more of, you know, we can call him Gene. Um, I don't know if he's going to come back every episode or just periodically through the season. Vince Gilligan has said, you will see more of that, but I'm not going to say when and I'm not going to say what. But that right. we have all agreed. He says that everyone agrees that the story's not over for Saul. I mean, imagine what they can do. They can show something happening happening in 2002 that informs our understanding of what happened during Breaking Bad that also gives Saul Goodman a reason to come back or gives Gene or Jimmy or whatever we want to call him a reason to mount. You know what I mean? It, right. we, saw, we saw Walt do that all the time, realize it was time for him to do something. Right. Um, so to your question, is he always going to be a little bit sleazy? I wouldn't doubt if they can set up something with Chuck or something with another character he comes into contact with, they can give Saul Goodman a reason to do the good the good thing. They can give Saul Goodman a reason to do the right thing, but we don't know what it is yet, and we certainly haven't seen that yet. You know what I mean? We haven't seen what right. would overcome his selfishness and his self-regard. When does the Cinnabon scene take place? What year is this? It, we don't know. We don't know how long he's been living as Gene. Well, that's true. We don't know how long he's been living there, but also, but how long were the adventures of Breaking Bad? When did he leave? Breaking Bad took place over the course, the first episode was him turning 50, and then that episode in the future, I believe he was turning 52. So I think everything we saw happened across two years. Okay. So, but I'm just saying, that anything like that, that, like for instance, Gene in Omaha could run into Jesse Pinkman, for all we know. Right. You know? Like th- that part of the storyline is still open. And um, who knows how long they'll, I mean, maybe this will all take place in the past for one or two seasons, and then it'll all take place in the in the future. Bob Odenkirk said he wants to know what happened when Saul was closing his door after Walter White left. He said, we don't know anything about what Saul was doing through through the events of Breaking Bad. You could have, you could weave it, you know, the question we've had about how could they bring Jesse and Walt into the show, it could be, you know, passing, passing in and out of the office. <laughs> you know, there could be a way, like there's no rule that they can't, that they can't go to almost anything in that time span. So it's a very, it's very interesting. And I think showing us that scene and showing it in such a, it was shot in such a noirish style with the black and white and the music that was offsetting it. And the tension of that scene, I really felt like, I mean, I wasn't sure someone wasn't going to bust in and put a bullet in his brain through that whole scene. And I think that's what having that present day timeline is, is it gives us the sadness. And to me, it shows me a, a, a Saul, a degraded version of Saul that I want to see zoom back in and do something. I want to see him pull something off. You know what I mean? I want to see him right. get back some of his, his mojo. And I think that was, it, if that's what the stakes of this show are, I think they set it up 
really well. Hey, I was going to say, since you uh, played the clip earlier of his last speech from Breaking Bad, I wondered if you also wanted to play the clip from uh, Network that he is referencing when he's in the law office. Which he calls it out in the show. He says it's Ned Beatty from Network. But in that scene in Network, Ned Beatty is the capitalist. And so Bob Odenkirk's, uh, his odd utterances about uh, the, the forces of nature and how they're going to atone <laughs> uh, in that meeting with uh, uh, Hamlin, Hamlin, and McGill is taken from that great scene. So yeah, we'll go out with that audio. And I just want to mention one other thing. If you look at that scene, the the desk is a long, it's a long table with lots of lights on it. So you can see what Jimmy was thinking coming into that room and making a reference that he hoped any one would get. The quote lines up with his attitude towards them, <laughs> but it also is just him being a guy who thought of a movie reference when he walked into a room, and I feel like, again, if, that, if we're going to see Jimmy do more of that, but kind of misuse it, maybe the writers of the show are saying it's significant that Jimmy McGill would quote this this grotesque capitalist character. He's in but, it for the money. Yeah. Well, he is, but again, what it, does it go deeper than that? Is there more to it? And I think that's what we're going to find out. Hopefully a little bit more in episode two, which is called Miho, and we're gonna what we're going to do essentially is take this break and we're going to come back and uh, with a second segment where we talk about the second episode. Awesome. It is the international system of currency which determines the totality of life on this planet. That is the natural order of things today. That is the atomic and subatomic and galactic structure of things today. And you have meddled with the primal forces of nature. And you will atone. Am I getting through to you, Mr. Beale? Not even a trace of you. Well, we are back from that break, which for us was uh, a day during which we got to go and watch another episode of Better Call Saul, uh, and we're back to talk about it. And that episode is episode two, Miho. Yay. And who is Miho, Chris, as the title refers to? Uh, Miho is uh, uh, Tuco, the horrible, insane drug dealer gangster and it's interesting how much tuco is tuco <laughs> you yeah. know i mean everything from chopping up the peppers and, and cooking to being kind of uh you know n- like not realizing that he's revealing his ignorance to his own men and to the people that he's right. trying to intimidate but right. s- but still being such a live wire that you really are afraid of what he might do and in particular i would say this whole opening sequence is is i mean really it hinges on What's going to happen to the skateboarding twins, frankly? Yeah. Because we know Saul's not going to get mauled. And we, you know, at worst, he's not even going to get scarred, at least not where we can see it on his face. And we know Tuco's going to survive. Well, and as far as him being so much himself, I, I guess, you know, maybe they're just for people who did not watch Breaking Bad who might watch this. They're like any character like this. We have to reintroduce and set him up again. So they do a perfect job of just demonstrating what a nut he is. The cold open of the episode was a flashback for a couple minutes flashback from the end of the first episode to moments before when the twins arrived and we're seeing more of the perspective of Tuco now as as his grandmother shows up with these two numbskulls accusing her of hitting them and they really make the mistake. I mean, I would say in that opening scene, we see how disrespectful they are and knowing Tuco, we just want them to shut up. Even Jimmy, when he shows up, knows to cajole and to wheedle and that's exactly what he starts to do. The second that uh, Tuco puts a gun in his face and pulls him in, Jimmy is wheeling and dealing right from the start. And he has a line that I really love. Uh, he says, uh, I'm not sure if this is a situation where I should or should not look you in the eye. <laughs> right. He's just grasping for anything. Like, I don't know what to do, so I'll just tell you that I don't know what to do. And in the end, I would say what we notice in that moment is Tuco recognizing something about Jimmy that we've already begun to recognize. He says, wow, you've got a mouth on you. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so Tuco calls up some henchmen including, I believe we hear the name of one henchman, Nacho, that is going to become a more major figure, played by Michael Mando, who's a regular on the series. And the other henchmen are henchmen that we would recognize from Breaking Bad. They were, respectively, I guess I thought of one of them as the fat one and the other one as the one that Tuco beats to death in front of Walt and Jesse, which horrifies them so much at the end of season one. Right. <laughs> um, 
and that guy Nodos is the one that later when they're out in the desert, you know, interrupts and and is told to stop helping by Tuco. So that's sort of again setting up what is going to be Nodos's demise later, which is he interrupts too often or advises Tuco in front of people. Right too often and then sort of pays the price which again pays the price for what trying to help but don't try to help Tuco no. but we might be getting ahead of ourselves so they get out to the desert and I think you had expressed that this scene in particular was one where you really felt like it was really clicking for you and I, I agree this this scene is uh, something of, a, of an echo of the scene in the first episode I believe where we meet Saul where Walt and Jesse take Saul out to the desert and they've got guns on him and he goes from having absolutely no advantage to realizing these guys aren't really going to do him harm to realizing who they are because he recognizes, I believe, Walt's cough. He says, Mr. White. Uh-huh. <laughs> and they're, they're wearing the uh, ski mask with the tassels on him that Jesse found. Um, so anyway, in that, in that original scene, that's where we saw Saul's ability to fast talk his way out of trouble. And he ends up not just being not intimidated by Walt and Jesse, but taking them on as clients, you know, and, and, and letting them know they need him. Right. And this scene was very much a, a, a callback to that. But what would you say was your takeaway from this, uh, this great scene in the desert? It was just so well done. It's just the, uh, a perfect crystallization of Tuco and of Jimmy. You get to see, uh, those characters so perfectly demonstrated, uh, and Jimmy's such a brilliant talker. I mean, you know, as soon as you, get out there he's got to talk his way out of this and then uh first thing i i loved is he's he 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 decides he's, his only way out at first he's got to tell the truth and, and just tell the whole truth and he tells him about the kettlemans and he he mentions their, you know their car looking like like uh abuelo's car and he he says and he, he he refers to their car as the kettlemobile which uh i love just because it's so flippant and Mm-hmm. He's that kind of guy who say, says silly stuff even in a situation where he's, you know, very likely about to die. Well, you see him do it in the courtroom scenes, too, where he says something that's kind of intended to be amusing, and he gets no reaction, and he kind of shrugs it off right. a little bit like, okay, well, but he's willing to try anything. Right, he just keeps going. And then another one in the in the uh, desert. I, it's just several great things in uh, when he was uh, trying to talk his way out in the desert. Uh, one is... Uh, Uh, he's trying to uh, convince him that he really is a lawyer, and he says, "I passed the bar. Ask me anything, uh, not contract law." You know, <laughs> he's like he's <laughs> he's got to hedge his his. Well, I, you know, I better not. Uh, my life can't depend on whether I uh, in that particular department. That is also not long before he comes up with one of my favorite moments in the whole episode, which was uh, Special Agent Jeffrey Steele, FBI. <laughs> yeah, he's fantastic. He, he he weaves this story, and then he. He adds an A. It's Jeffrey A. Steele. Well, I'm I'm reminded of the fact that uh, Walt came up with Heisenberg, I believe, at the at the end of a Tuco intimidation uh, scene like that, like that he pulled the the name Heisenberg out of his ass in the same way, which made me wonder: Are we going to hear more from from Agent uh, Special Agent Jeffrey Steele <laughs> or not? Yeah, it does seem like uh, Saul's turning out to be this guy who has a, a lot of identities. You know, right. I mean, we've already tracked Slip and Jimmy, and we've got Saul, and we've got Jimmy. And we've got uh, a gene, so maybe uh, Jeffrey Steele will be another name that we hear a little bit more of. We saw that Nacho kind of emerged as as a level-headed guy in terms of the way this scene played out. He he emerged as a level-headed figure amongst Tuco's guys, right. and it seemed like he was kind of working with reason and logic. Yeah. But it also seems like we find out later in the episode that maybe what he realized was you know, uh, uh, maybe he found a way in his mind that Jimmy's more valuable to him alive than dead. Right. Or maybe more valuable to him as someone who seems like an ally or might be loyal than someone who might, uh, you know, just be disposed of. Right. But really, you know, uh, you know, Jimmy calls him frickin' frack. That whole scene is all about, and the tension surrounding what's going to happen to these twins. Like, is is Jimmy going to be responsible this early in the show for the murder of two people? Uh, indirectly or directly, but, you know, responsible, even though they don't do anything to help their case. I mean, at right. the moment when, when Tuco's about to let him go in the garage and he pulls the pulls the tape off their mouths and they start accusing Jimmy. Well, they thought that was the only way to save their own life, that, you know. Right. Well, But it still didn't seem like they were going to be long for this world, and I was not quite comfortable with seeing them die because Jimmy made a mistake. So I feel like even though awful, awful, awful things happen, I'm glad that they kept it on the side of Jimmy did what he could, to save them when he was he was free he could have walked away yeah but he actually did turn back around and try to save them and he in doing so he exhibited some of his super secret fast talking powers like you say he's he's ready to walk away he's safe now 
uh, he's he's guaranteed to live, but he turns around, and I thought it was extremely heroic uh, to stop and say, let me try to talk these guys out of, of their trouble, and he saves their lives. He saves their lives, but does agree that they deserve to get some kind of punishment. Right. What well, I, I love the way that yeah, he's, it was very much like a lawyer, though. I mean, it was very right. much like what you, you know, like the best we can hope for is some form of punishment right. for these guys. And actually, it, it comes back around to the, the result of that scene is, uh, you know, we've talked about a lot of our favorite lines. I know we've we've gone back and forth about about um, whether we should single out a quote of the week every week, but there's so much great writing on this show. I think it's it's there's always going to be something that jumps out at you. Yeah. And there was one line as he's as he's taking the twins to the hospital, uh, uh, where they're mad at him because their legs are broken, and he says, "I just talk you down from a death sentence to six months probation. I'm the best lawyer ever." Right. Right. Because <laughs> he says you're the worst lawyer ever. Yeah. That's the moral scope that we're dealing with here. That's the moral range of options that we're dealing with. Is that like okay? I'm I'm a scoundrel and I'm going to be dealing with scoundrels, but we can still try to be civil and have some kind of order, uh, even amongst scoundrels. And and we don't want to jump too far to like where we see that going because the last scene in the episode really gives you a clue as to what the direction for the story might be coming up. The next scene we see is my notes were very simple for this scene. I just have Jimmy on a date, right. cleavage, breadsticks, and vomiting. Right. Well, because and at first I didn't get why he was so distracted by the breadsticks, but it's because the the breaking bones. It was, it was it was making him sick to think about the breaking bones. It finally, as soon as he gets up to go vomit, it's like, oh, okay, I get it. He's thinking about what is still technically his fault in a lot of ways. And it's Esquivel that they use the soundtrack. I love uh, Esquivel. If if anybody doesn't know the brilliant Mexican band leader, that's like the height of lounge music. And to me, some of the just best most fun music mankind has ever created and they uh use Esquivel there but that scene was great to me because it answered some of our questions about like what is Saul like we were talking about how we didn't really see I don't think we talked about it on the show but we talked about it amongst ourselves about how he's kind of not a sexual creature he seems like you know we've never known him to have a girlfriend or a wife or any any anything he yearns for and so seeing him on this date with this woman just sort of answered the question for me of oh yeah he's kind of doing the he's doing normal things he's using his charm uh, the way that anyone would use their charm you know he's the same thing that gets him out of getting murdered in the desert is the same thing that might make him a charming date but we can see that he's drinking too much and he's he's uh you know, he's he's maybe losing his mind a little bit right so he he stumbles drunkenly to his brother's place and and he crashes on the couch, and in doing so, he, he, he comes in and he forgets. We don't know for sure whether he forgets to ground himself, but we can expect he did because he also forgot to leave his cell phone in the mailbox. And we see something that confirms that, at the very least, Chuck believes he's ill. Right. We've had some doubt about whether whether that was the case, like whether he's a con artist too, and he's putting some long con on. At the very least, we know when no one's watching, Chuck still acts like someone who who believes he has electromagnetic. He pulls up the space blanket. Well, not just that, but he he approaches, which you know, Jimmy's passed out, and he approaches the pants like they're, uh, you know, like it's plutonium or something with tongs, and that's right. Dumps out the phone and throws it out. Right. And also, yeah, you're talking about a moment later when after day. Jimmy has demanded that Chuck remove the the space blanket, which is, feels a little bullying, but you can, I, I mean, I think you can analyze why Jimmy might be doing that, but. Uh, but when he turns his back and walks out of the room, Chuck looks at him and then and immediately covers himself with the blanket again. So again, indicating that Chuck is not consciously putting Jimmy on or putting anybody on. At this point, I sort of take Chuck at face value, but that doesn't make him any less mysterious of a character. We never, we didn't return to Hamlin, Hamlin, and McGill this week. We didn't see Kim. We didn't see Howard. So we didn't get any development of that side of things. But we did get the idea that maybe after this encounter with Tuco... Jimmy is ready to go back to work and just do his job and just nose to the grindstone. Right. He's pulling those $700 checks. And first we see him get back in the good graces of the court clerk by bringing her a, a plush kitten, which I love the visual storytelling of this show and of the show that spawned it, that, you know, he shows up, he's got a plush doll in his hand. You don't really get it. They, the reverse shot, you see the, the top of the cabinet behind her is, is you know, covered with plush dolls. And Beanie Babies and that type of stuff. Right. And you just go, oh, okay, she likes those. And maybe he's brought her many of these before to get back in her good graces. Right. Or maybe this is just what you do to get back in her good graces. Right. But immediately she became, a, you know, she was in the first one too. She's more of a character now. Like I, they can they can build on her just as they could any of the little minor characters that we've seen a couple times already. 
So um, it also brought us another encounter with Mike. And I would say, in general, another great montage, uh, like the Cinnabon montage, like the uh, meth montages we would get on uh, Breaking Bad, where just great visual storytelling. You totally get the sense of this is part of the grind. Jimmy's back at it. He's trying to just do his job. And he almost seems like maybe he appreciates it more now that he's glad to be alive. I found it really fun to watch all those snips of cases in there where we just see, we can't, you know, hear his actual arguments because it's cutting from one half of a sentence in one argument to another case entirely to another one to another one. Uh, But it was so fun just to watch him stand in the courtroom and, and, uh, and be Jimmy McGill that uh, it made me want to see entire cases and made me say, oh, I hope at some point we get like a more Perry Mason-like show where one of his cases becomes important enough and we, we spend some time in the courtroom with him. I think we got a little hint of what the Jimmy McGill lawyer show would have been like. And yes, I would happily watch that show. Like I would be fine if that's what we were seeing now. But I'm really glad that, you know, they're giving us a feel for it. And it's very funny, and it moves very fast. And I, like I said, it's another great montage, the really good music cue that goes with it. I didn't recognize the music to the to the lawyering montage, but I wondered if the music had any connection to all that jazz because the, you know, it's showtime in the mirror is definitely uh, a reference to Roy Scheider's uh, performance in, um, in all that jazz. And, and, and once again... Someone sees him doing it, and he points out to them that it's from a movie, just like he pointed out to the the meeting room full of lawyers that that what he was doing was from network in the first episode. So that might be a running thing that he he quotes movies and then is disappointed when <laughs> when people don't right. get the reference. Right. Which I've you know I think we've all had that feeling before of like uh, you know you you want someone to get it, but once you have to explain it, it's no it's no fun. Um, so yeah, that 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 was just a great stretch. What did you make of the encounter with Mike? Is Mike so misanthropic, or is he victimizing Jimmy? Does he just not like Jimmy, and he wants to make him suffer? That's a good question. I think, you know, uh, maybe they just decided that because they need him to be in a fight with Saul, and that uh, he's, uh, as, a plex, uh, as an ex-police officer, they can say, uh, well, he's really into the rules and enforcing the rules. Um And I wonder, you know, because they've given us a little hint when you see uh, clips from next week, it it looks like Mikey's beating up Jimmy. Uh, If I didn't get that wrong, it's what I didn't pause it or anything. It's one of those really, you know, quick cuts in the in the clips from next week. Well, they've been they've been showing that shot in in materials for the show for a while. So I would say I I knew that that was coming. Like at some point he's going to get up in his face. I mean, obviously Jimmy bites back. Like I loved him making fun of Mike this time and calling him a troll and stuff like that. That was very funny. But I mean, at some point there's got to be a reason why they would ever move beyond this antagonistic relationship. So yeah, it's got to bubble over into something else. So I'm assuming if that's what happens next week, maybe after this is when some kind of bond is forged because, you know, once you beat Saul up, what do you do with him? Right. Maybe he, maybe uh, Saul uh, goes uh, too far antagonizing him Mike comes out and roughs him up and then they can have a talk get to know each other and uh, Saul slash Jimmy can say hey I need some uh, muscle you know this guy's giving me a hard time and, and they get involved uh, in that way there's got to be something we don't expect with Mike being there and what he's doing with that job and how he gets into the business uh, another character that I expect to see a lot more of coming up is Nacho who shows up at Jimmy's office at the end, which surprises <laughs> the uh, the proprietor of the, the nail salon who comes back and knocks on the door and is like, you actually have someone here for you. Right. She can't believe it. The customer shows up, and it's Nacho. Yeah. And at the end of it, uh, Nacho says to him, uh, when you figure out you're in the game, call me. Yeah. And I thought that was a nice little beat there where it's like, again, that's sort of what the show is going to be about or in, in some way. We're watching... We're watching Jimmy realize he's in the game yeah. and what that means. But in that moment, his character doesn't believe that he is. You know, well, we know what becomes of him. We know that Saul is is going to at some point decide he's in the game. So the fact that we're still a little bit in the dark about how we he gets from here to there is great. I think they've done a great job of setting up the, the conflicts for the show. Uh, I mean, I really don't have any complaints. I would say it's exceeded my... I mean, in general, the show has exceeded my expectations by not having any real missteps. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, there's really nothing about it that feels unsustainable or that feels wrongheaded. Right. Uh, and and, and that maybe they are doing a little bit of a slow burn and building things slowly because they do have our faith and our trust 
from Breaking Bad, but I mean, if there's any, maybe that's the one vestige of this being a spinoff that makes it worthwhile is that they know that they have us on the hook. So they, they know that we'll be patient uh, as long as it's good. And thus far, I would say the writing, the direction, the acting has been superb. This episode was directed by Michelle McLaren, who was a, uh, one of the MVPs on Breaking Bad, and she's done great work on Game of Thrones and other things. So, I mean, they're, they're, you know, the talent pool is still there. And uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm quite pleased. You said they might be doing a, a sort of a slow build. I felt like it might be going too fast because when I first pictured a show like uh, uh, Better Call Saul being its own show, I thought, well, uh, we'll probably see Saul uh, you know, tied up in the desert and having to uh, talk his way out of it. That would be the the exact you know uh, crux of the biscuit for where that would go, and so we'll do some stuff to build up to that and get to that uh, perfect scene for this show on episode six or maybe episode eight or 12 would be better, you know, uh, but they did that on episode two. So, uh, to me, I'm already feeling like, wow, that, you know, that's the perfect thing for the show to do. And so did they peak too soon? No. Well, I mean, when I say that the slow build, I just mean, we don't know anything really about Kim Wexler yet. We don't really know like Nacho, who's going to be a, a lead character on the show or lead on this season. We, you know, we get introduced to him in this, in this, uh, this kind of, uh, stealthy way. Roundabout, yeah. You know, we, 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 we see Mike, but only in a couple of scenes. I, I, I just mean they're slowly building the things that we know the show is going to be about, rather than starting the show off with, you know, Mike is the fixer for Jimmy, and you know what I mean? Like, they, they, right. they're, they're building the ensemble and developing Yeah, they're that slowly building slowly. The, th- the character situations, but we have, we, we, jo- we dove right into action-adventure. I guess maybe what I'm comparing it to is a lot of shows where they use the first episode to introduce you to everything and set up what the status quo for what this world is going to be, and then they cut you loose. And then in the second episode, you get sort of a standalone adventure almost, you know, usually. But with this, it's very much like Breaking Bad. It's extremely serialized. Like, we know we're going to see Saul go through some paces, and we know we're going to see him. He's going to be up and he's going to be down at different times. And they, they're letting us live in that moment of ambiguity at the end of this episode with him. Like, we wait a week to see how he gets a little bit deeper. You know what I mean? Yep. As opposed to it being this very clear uh, A leads to B leads to C and so forth. So, I mean, I just it's very much on par with, with the show that, that it comes from. So in that respect, I, I won't always compare it to Breaking Bad, but it's, there's, such, there's so much in common, and I mean that as a compliment, <laughs> that uh, it might be a while before I don't think of this as my little appointment, uh, you know, back in that world that I love so well. Yeah, it's so it's so Breaking Bad that it just feels a lot like more Breaking Bad, and that's a good thing. Well, do you have any other thoughts or, or anything to close on this episode before we wrap it up? No. <laughs> I, I, I got to mention every, everything that I jotted down. I said, oh, let's bring this up. Let's talk about that. We talked about it all. I should have just stopped recording when you said no. Um, I, I do have a couple things that I want to say to people. If you do want to email us, first I'd say take a deep breath and get a hold of yourself. And if you still want to send that message, you can write us at saulsearching at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Saul underscore searching. That's pretty good right now, right? Cool. That's awesome. Maybe somebody could do a recap show about Saul searching. Has that happened? Do people do recaps of recaps? You know, they do have podcasts about podcasts now. But I, I have not seen a podcast about a podcast about a podcast yet. Oh, that could be next, next, next after, after next. We should probably talk about this off mic. Yeah, that's a good idea, though. Let's work on that. All right, man. Well, hot talk. Hot talk.